This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. And welcome to a special edition of Knowledge at Wharton coming to you from New York City. Today we are at the offices of Forbes Media for the Small Giants Award Ceremony. These are companies that are being recognized by Forbes for the successes that they have had in recent years. These are companies that are primarily privately held. They're also financial successes, but they also have very interesting side stories as well. Today, we'll introduce you to people like a company that produces the mix-ins for ice cream products, you know, like cookie dough pieces and others. We'll also introduce you to a company that says it wants to be the McDonald's of urgent care and is designed specifically towards children. We'll also introduce you to an environmentally friendly children's book publisher. And those are just a few of the people that we will be interviewing here today as part of our show. And as always, we can't put these shows together without the help of some great people. We need to thank our friends at Forbes Media for helping coordinate the show here today. Also, thanks to my producers, Patty McMahon and Monique Nazareth as well as Wayne Davis, our on-site engineer, and Dion Simpkins, back at our SiriusXM studios in Philadelphia. And joining us to start off our show are the people behind the Small Giants Awards. Bo Burlingham, who is a Forbes contributor, and he's author of the 2006 book, Small Giants, Companies That Choose to Be Great Instead of Big. Also joining us, Lauren Feldman, who is a senior editor for entrepreneurship at Forbes. And he's also the host of Know Your Business, which is on Sirius XM 111 every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Great to see you both. Thank you for inviting us here today. Good, good to be here. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank Appreciate you. You're being here. Uh, Lauren, I guess let's start with the backstory of the awards and, and how it was that you came to want to recognize companies like this. Sure. Well, first of all, I met Bo uh, when he was sort of getting the initial ideas for the book uh, in um, probably 2002, I think. He yeah. was working on a story that became about a company called Zingerman's, a kind of an iconic deli in Ann Arbor, Michigan, that became really the first small giant. Is that right? That's true. That's where it all started. Um, so uh, I helped with that story just a tiny bit. Uh, then when the book came out, Bo wrote a treatment uh, for Inc. Magazine that became a cover story, and I edited that and worked on it with Bo. And, um, and then when I got to, uh, to Forbes in uh, 2015, I, one of the first things I did was to ask Bo to come along and uh, see if we could build on what he'd started with Forbes Small Giants, because I felt he'd really hit a nerve with it. He'd identified a group of companies, many of which kind of wondered if there was anybody else out there who felt the same way they did. Um, so, th- th- I mean, this obviously goes back a decade or more Yes, in terms of really starting to see a trend in how some businesses, some smaller businesses who were successful, were really kind of laying out their, their, their way to success. Yeah, it actually started with a question. Um, I had written this uh, article that um, Lauren referred to about Zingerman's, which was we put on the cover of Inc. and it said the coolest small company in America. And it was about how Zingerman's had, you know, gotten started and grown to a point where 10 years after it started, it was already famous. It had been written up all over the place and, uh, uh, you know, received all kinds of awards. And they reached a point where they had a lot of options and they had to decide what they were going to do next. And they could have... Uh, they could have franchised easily. Mm-hmm. They had people coming to them saying they wanted to start Zingerman's in other college towns around the country. Uh, they could have probably raised private equity and uh, expanded that way. But they decided that, you know, they hadn't – that's not why – they wanted – they had started Zingerman's in order to create something, as they put it, great and unique. Yeah. And, you know, when you start duplicating something, it's no longer unique by definition – and a lot of times it isn't even very good, let alone great. Sure. And so uh, they uh, they decided that instead they were going to do something else, and they they talked about it for a couple of years, and then they came up with this plan where they said that it was called uh, Zingerman's 
2000 and uh, Zimmerman's 2006, I, I guess. Yeah. Uh, or no, 2000. No, Zingerman's, it was Zingerman's 1994, right. and it was their vision of what Zingerman's was going to look like 15 years in the future, in 2009. Right. Um, and it was no longer going to be just a delicatessen. It was going to be a group of businesses. They were going to create uh, something called uh, the Zingerman's Community of Businesses, hmm. and each of these businesses was going to be food-related and located in the Ann Arbor area, and... Uh, their goal was for each of them to be great and unique in its own, in in its own right. And um, by the time I went to visit them, they were already more than halfway there. And you know, today they've got about I, I think twelve independent, eleven or twelve independent businesses. Okay. They've got a world class bakery called <clears throat> Zingerman's Bakehouse. They've got a great restaurant called uh, Zingerman's Roadhouse. And uh, they've got a chocolate company, Zingerman's Chocolate, and they've got a coffee company, Zingerman's Coffee Company. They've got an ice cream and gelato company. So they have all these businesses. And, and Zing Train, a company that actually trains people to do business their way. Huh. And uh, um, so uh, it was, you know, it was very, it was very cool, and uh, I, I was fascinated by it, and. Uh, so I published this article, and a publisher came to me and said, gee, maybe there's a book there. And right. I, I didn't get it at first. Right. I, I thought, maybe there's a book for Ari and the founders, <laughs> but is, what, what do you mean? Right. And he said, and then he, he explained to me that, no, he meant companies that had had the opportunity to get a lot bigger, a lot faster, but had chosen not to because they had other goals they considered more important than getting as big as possible as fast as possible. So was was Zingerman's one of the, the the first companies you think that really kind of had that philosophy? I'm sure there were others, but really it kind of the start of a wave, which now seemingly we see more and more of these days. Uh, I, I think that that's true. I mean, I, uh, I actually, you know, when I started out to look for other companies that had sort of made a similar choice, reached the crossroads, made a similar choice. I frankly didn't have no idea. Even though I'd been at Inc. Magazine and been studying entrepreneurs for more than 20 years, I had no idea how many of these or if I was going to find enough to even write a book about. Right. Uh, but I began looking around, and uh, in fact, there were a lot more of them than I ever realized. Uh, they, were, they could be found in every industry in every part of the country. You'd be surprised how hard it can be to, to find these companies. It's, it's very different when you're talking about privately owned companies sure. than when you're talking about public companies. With public companies, you know, people keep lists. You can go to uh, Yahoo Finance and get any statistic you want uh, about each of these companies. But, you know, on the block we are right here, there, there could be 20 small giants here, and we'd have no idea that they even exist. It so, takes a lot of digging and reporting to find them. I was going to ask you, so how did you go about finding them? I mean, you know, in, in that period of time, you're working, uh, you know, with the Internet to a degree. But, I mean, to be able to find it, I guess to agree, it's, it's word of mouth. Uh, it was word of mouth. I, I just talked to everybody I knew and... Uh, told them what I was trying to do and asked them if they had any suggestions, and the ideas sort of began to roll in. And, uh, um, you know, Danny Meyer, who we're going to have here today, back then, uh, his company, Union Square Hospitality Group, uh, was much smaller than it is today. And, uh, you know, his goal, his, he told me that his idea was to uh, he didn't want to build uh, any restaurant that he couldn't walk to in five minutes from his house. Uh, that, that changed a little bit, didn't it? That, that, that did change. Uh, we'll go into that this afternoon. Yes. Uh, and uh, uh, he, uh, you know, so I began to sort of come across these companies, and I actually, I because there were turned out there were a lot more of more of them than I ever imagined. I was able to choose the fourteen that I thought would allow me to sort of figure out, well, what is this whole phenomenon about? Yeah. And, uh, uh, and that's what I wrote Small Giants about. So then what is it, Lauren, that, I mean, really in going through this process uh, with Bo, when you look at the 25 companies that you're, you're honoring this year, what are the, the kind of the key ingredients that you think are common amongst that group? Well, you know, we, we 
we, in picking the Forbes Small Giants, we've abided by the same uh, criteria that Bo set when he picked the companies for the book. And there, there are certain requirements that we insist upon. One is they have to have been around for 10 years. Mm-hmm. They have to be profitable. You know, these are not fly-by-night. They're not startups. These are companies that have proven th- that they can do what they say they do. Uh, they have to have been recognized as leaders in their industry. Uh, they have to demonstrate that they treat their employees well and that they have uh, had an impact on their communities. Yeah. Um, the community part of it, I find to be the interesting yeah. piece to it, is that and the employee piece. I think those are the two really kind of unique ones. Yeah. Uh, in that you have more companies that are thinking not of their employees just as somebody that comes to work, but as to a degree a member of a family. Well, it's very true. Uh, you know, Herb Keller, who was the founder of Southwest Airlines, was uh, always asked about well. How did Southwest Airlines become so successful? And he would say, well, it's our culture, um, you know, because it allows them to do things that uh, other airlines really can't do. And uh, when he was asked, well, what's the secret to your culture? He said it's caring for people in the totality of their lives. You know, what you just said, really, uh, not just as uh, employees, but as human beings. And that's what I found with all of these companies. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney, and we're on the road today in New York City. We're at the Forbes Small Giants Award Ceremony. We're joined here uh, by Lauren Feldman, Senior Editor of Entrepreneurship at Forbes, and also by Bo Burlingham, who is a Forbes contributor and author of the 2006 book, Small Giants. So take us through, though, this, this kind of trend, because seemingly what we see now obviously was just kind of a, a beginning idea back in the mid-90s going into 2000s. What is it that companies kind of recognize, do you think, that, that makes them want to follow these kind of paths, to, to really transition to these types of successful uh, paths to, uh, to, to very good business? If, if I could interrupt for a second, yeah. I just was, I've learned all kinds of things from Bo. One of the things I learned from him is that a lot of business movements in this country start with small companies, not big companies. And this is a perfect example of that. And Bo's the first journalist I know who really figured that out, put his finger on it. Well, it was – I had a lot of help. Um, The the, – I think that the secret of small giants lies within the hearts – and minds of the founders mm-hmm. of these companies. Right. There were people who read Small Giants, and their response was, that's my company. That's the company I want to have. Right. And, um, in fact, that led us eventually, didn't lead me, but it led some other people to go about creating a Small Giants community that would be there for people who wanted to be in touch with other similar be- similar. Uh, companies and it uh, ultimately found its uh, r- really it was really when Forbes uh, decided to sort of take this on and really make it an annual uh, package yeah. um, that we were really able to sort of bring more of these companies into the public eye and you know we found that they they were they're not. They're not the typical company. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, it's not like you go out there and, and any small company you find is going to be a small giant. Right. Uh, these are companies that really do have very high aspirations. They want to be the best in the world at what they do. And um, a lot of them are in their niche. And uh, we are, we've been able to, thanks to Forbes, we've been able to go out and really identify these in many, many different uh, areas of the economy. And it's really sort of um, taking, in in many cases, these are things that people are already doing. Mm -hmm. And what really what I did was to give them a name. Uh, I I think it was out there. Um, They didn't have a name. You know, we used to talk about small companies or big companies, and usually in the media, when we talked about big companies, we really meant large public companies. Right. And when we talked about small companies, people had in mind the sort of the mom-and-pop grocery store. This is something different. 
this is this is a whole different category of uh, of business, uh, and they, they are companies that have this huge effect on their local communities because they are rooted in their communities, mm-hmm. and they they really sort of become a, an important part of the fabric of the communities where they're located, uh, and they 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 provide much of the texture of American life frankly and, and they've and they have been able to develop a level of trust with the community and the community with them over whatever period of time it may be and, and when you have that level of trust that's a bridge to success that some companies are not able to continually have there they may be successful and trustworthy for a while but then they fall off the edge of the cliff well that's certainly true don um the um but I would also say that once once companies grow, the whole dynamic changes. Right. And once they get above a certain size, I mean, you know, like you take a company like Whole Foods, it was once a small giant in Austin, Texas. Yeah. But John Mackey decided to go public and to, um, you know, go around acquiring other similar companies around the country. Well. Once you become a national company, your goal is to give people the same experience everywhere. So you walk into a Whole Foods in Austin, and it's a similar experience as walking into a Whole Foods in Boston or in San Francisco or in Chicago or wherever. And uh, whereas with the small giants, they are at least – creating a unique identity in their communities that that really is uh, distinctive to the point where I found when I went around and looked at them, you almost couldn't imagine them being any place else. Yeah. I mean, you take a company like Anchor Brewing, which was really the yep. company that started the whole craft brewing yep. revolution in this country, and, uh, you know, it's a San Francisco institution. I mean, you can have great craft breweries in other cities, and there are, uh, but it's hard to imagine craft uh, anchor brewing being, you know, it was founded during the gold rush. It's been through all of the fires and earthquakes and what have you, and it's really a part of San Francisco culture. But as you both said uh, in the writing leading up to this ceremony today is that these are also companies, though, that have been attracting attention yes. from private equity firms, from other companies as buyout opportunities. And they have said, thank you, but no, I, I, I don't need that. That's, that's right. By and large, I would say that that's true. Um, uh, most of them, you know, the thing is this, is that when you – take on majority investors from, say, private equity or something like that, um, you know, the fact of the matter is you don't own the company anymore. And, in in fact, a private equity company has to be most responsive to its own customers who are the investors in its funds. And uh, that is something that these companies really do not want. These are run by people who have a very clear idea in their own minds of who they are, what they want, and why. Frankly, they couldn't make the decisions that they do if they didn't have that clear sense of who they were. It, it's in a, the irony of the situation is a lot of people start businesses because they want to be their own boss. But the right. minute they take private equity or venture capital, they cease to be their own boss. Do you think there are situations, and maybe within this group or other companies that you've seen in, in the past, that – are they fearful of going public? Are they concerned about, you know, as you both have alluded to, how things will change so significantly that that's kind of that wall in front of them and they don't want to cross that wall? Yes. Sure. They, uh, they've they built a company uh, with certain goals and ideals that they've developed themselves with their teams and they yeah. want to stay true to them. And they don't know if they'll be able to do that if somebody else is involved with their money calling their shots. One of the other things that you put in the criteria of picking these is having a sound model, a sound business model. Yes. Tell us why that is kind of a key ingredient here. Well, that's that's a key ingredient if you want to survive. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that having a sound business model, business, what is a sound business model today? may not be a sound business model 10 years from now. Right. And, uh, I, you know, I've seen that actually with at least one of the uh, companies in, in my book 
which uh, was absolutely great company, Rhythm and Hughes. You know, if, if, if you saw uh, the li- life of Pi, uh, yeah. that was all Rhythm and Hughes. There really wasn't a boy on the boat with a tiger. Uh, what? And, and they, <laughs> it was it was all done by computer special effects, and yeah. and they won an Academy Award for it eleven days after they filed for Chapter Eleven bankruptcy. And what had happened was that the uh, the circumstances which had uh, in which they built their original business model, um, you know, where basically every, all of these kind of companies were based in Hollywood and it was all coming out of Hollywood, that had completely changed. And uh, they were not able to change or they didn't, uh, they, they didn't, they weren't able to sort of make the adjustment uh, with the result that they wound up getting into business and eventually running out of cash. And when you run out of cash, you go out of business. So it's not like these uh, companies are immune to the basic laws of business. You need to have a sound business model. You need to have steady gross margins that you protect, you know, and, and um, uh, you need to have a healthy balance sheet. And if, if you don't do those things, then sooner or later you're going to get in trouble. And, you, and all these other wonderful things that you want to do, you can't do anymore. Lauren? And, you know, I think there's an example of a company that I love to cite that's on our um, most recent list. It's called Menlo Innovations. Uh-huh. It's a software uh, developer in Ann Arbor, actually <laughs> where Zingerman's is, right. totally unrelated. Um, it's, it's an amazing company. It's a small shop. I think their t- annual revenues are around $6 million a year. They right. only take projects that they think are really special. They, they're looking to do you know, great work, something that really matters. I know they did something for a hospital system there. Uh, they created a software system for their organ transplant uh, systems, uh-huh. you know, something to make it more efficient, make sure uh, things move as quickly as possible. That's the kind of project they're looking for. The amazing thing about this company and part of their business model is – they actually get paid by people who want to come and observe how they write code. Huh. They have a very distinctive system. Part of it is they pair people up. Nobody works alone. Right. Um, and they've had people pay them as much as $20,000 to spend a week observing and talking to uh, the people who write the code, the owners who run the business. And, in fact, they get uh, as much as $600,000 a year out of people coming to observe wow. uh, a, 10% of their annual revenue. And the best part about it is that they don't spend any money on marketing. That is their marketing. Their marketing sure. department is a profit center for them because people who come and observe then hire them to do uh, special projects. And I, you know, that, I love to cite that example because that's the kind of thing that I, you know, I think any business could learn from. It's, it's, right. When I tell this story, it's just you know, it's eye-opening to, to people who have you know, been in business for years. They have never heard of anything like this. That's the kind of thing that we're looking for here. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. We are in New York City. We are joined here uh, by Bo Burlingham, a Forbes contributor and author of the book Small Giants, and also by Lauren Feldman, senior editor of Entrepreneurship at Forbes, and also host of Know Your Business on Sirius XM 111 every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. I'd be interested to know, I mean, when you're talking about this group of uh, of companies, the ones that we'll be talking with today, uh, are there elements of this where these companies are still looking for growth, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. and they're able to, I mean, to a degree, this is this is a great opportunity for them to be able to pick the brains of other people and maybe find things that they can use to enhance the success that they've already had. Well, that I think that's the great value that uh, – Forbes, in fact, has uh, helped us, uh, you know, by by sponsoring this event, has given people the opportunity to uh, talk to each other and learn from each other. And uh, the, the Small Giants community also has a separate event called the Small Giants Summit, which uh, is uh, a once-a-year event where people can also come together. Um, and these companies do are... The one characteristic they all have is that they're run by very curious people who are constantly looking to figure out ways to improve their businesses. Now, I would hasten to add that 
most of these companies, pretty much all the companies in my book and most of the companies that we have on the list are growing companies. Uh, People sometimes misinterpret that when they say they choose to be great rather than big. uh, You know, it's not that they uh, don't want to grow. It's that they, they aren't willing to grow at any cost and that there are certain criteria that they bring to bear on how they will grow. And, uh, you know, Danny Meyer at uh, Union Square Hospitality Group is a great example of that. As you may know, uh, after, you know, when I wrote Small Giants, uh, he had a little stand in Madison Park that was selling uh, burgers and shakes called the Shake Shack. And uh, it subsequently got a lot bigger and started to expand and Eventually, he. But it took a long time. It, it, yeah, that it, wasn't the idea at the beginning. It no, was a yeah. seasonal stand, yeah. and it, it was years. Yeah, yeah, and uh, he uh, he was aware of the fact that it had. When I finished, by the time I finished the book, he was aware of the fact that there were possibilities of things to do, but he hadn't really uh, decided on what what he was going to do. Because eventually, he spun it off. He took the company public. Uh, He's not so he's not involved at all on a day to day basis. It's right. a, it, it is a public company, yeah. and uh, um, you know it, it, it's a lot bigger than uh, his original company, the uh, Union Square Hospitality Group. And one of the reasons he said he told me that he had spun it off was that he wanted Union Square Hospitality Group to remain a small giant, right. and. Uh, uh, I, from everything I know about it, it certainly has. But, Dan, you got it exactly right. It's, these companies are not opposed to growth. And, right. in fact, some of the companies on the list are you know, quite substantial in size. Or they're companies with hundreds of millions of yep. dollars of yep. revenue. Yep. Uh, New Belgium Brewing, uh, another craft brewer in uh, Colorado is an example. SRC, a manufacturing company, uh, is another example. Uh, these are uh, sizable companies. The thing that Bo came up with was a concept of he wants these companies to be human scale. Yeah. And maybe you should tell us what, what you meant by that. Well, I, I figured that when I was coming up with the criteria that I was going to use to select companies, that I had to, you know, rather than just uh, choose a number of employees or a revenue size, which frankly, will vary tremendously from industry to industry. Uh, You know, a big uh, or small manufacturing company is going to be a lot bigger than a small sort of design workshop. And uh, uh, so I had to come up with some way to define size that uh, really was going to sort of encompass what I was writing about. And I came up with the idea of human scale. Mm-hmm. And by that I mean that it's still of a size that the people at the top of the organization still have some contact with the entry-level people, or the people sure. who are just coming in, yeah. and vice versa. That, um, In other words, people know each other in the organization. The organization isn't so big that uh, people are, have, have got become anonymous. Yeah. And... Uh, um, that is a significant characteristic, but it can be, you know, as Lauren just pointed out, it can encompass uh, uh, companies that are really sort of f- fairly large. Um, you know, you take a company like uh, SRC Holdings in Springfield, Missouri, it's got, you know, 1,500 employees now. Sure. But when Jack Stack, uh, who's the CEO, walks around, SRC Holdings, yeah. everybody there says, hi, Jack. You know, it's like they all consider him his best, their best friend. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can just see it, that, that that is a human-scale company as big as it is. 
Great having you both with us today. Thank you for the invite again, Lauren. It's a pleasure to be here. Our goal is to, uh, to share these companies uh, and what they do with a lot of people. So thank you for helping us do that. Thank you. Bro, great to meet you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. Thank you. All the best. I really appreciate it. We will take a break. And we, when we come back, we will start to introduce you to some of these small giants. When we come back, we're going to introduce you to a young woman who has done phenomenal work in the healthcare sector in and around Houston. And it's geared specifically towards kids. We'll talk with her about that in just a minute. You're listening to Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome back to New York City, our special from Forbes Media as we look at their awardees of their Small Giants Awards. Great to have you with us. Dan Loney coming to you from New York City today. Just a reminder, we are with you each and every weekday, our show, Knowledge at Wharton. 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific, and then our show will replay in the evenings, 12 hours later, 10 p.m. East, 7 p.m. out on the West Coast. And just a reminder to visit the Knowledge at Wharton website, which has a variety of stories making news from around the globe. Go to knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu, and when you go there, make sure that you sign up for the newsletters, which come at you every Wednesday and Friday. And then also, if you scroll down the homepage, you'll see the microphone icon, which will allow you to listen to our Knowledge in podcast, which are uh, shortened versions of the interviews that we do on this show each and every day. All of that and much more at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Well, as a dad of newborns several years back, you always have the concerns about their health, even at night when they are sleeping. So when issues do occur, it ends up most times that you're heading off to the hospital emergency room for that care. But there is a company that is specializing in urgent, urgent care, specifically for children, with a little bit of a different angle on it. It is called Night Light Pediatrics. It's based in the Houston area. And Zawadi Bryan is the co-founder and CEO of Night Light Pediatrics. Great to meet you. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. I, I, give us the, the backstory on this because I find it interesting in, in reading uh, a couple of articles about your company that... You have said or people have said about your company that you would like to be the McDonald's of urgent care. Yes. Can you explain that? Yes. Well, like you mentioned, a father of newborns, you know, some time ago, when I run across parents across the country, they always tell me, where were you when I had kids or <laughs> where are you now that I have kids? And so, you know, McDonald's are, is on every corner. And so I feel that. Um, as a parent myself, it would be wonderful if we could put a nightlight pediatric urgent care everywhere that there are parents with small children so that they don't have to go to the emergency room. So th- that is basically the idea is to be able to provide an option for families in, in the not so normal times when seemingly a lot of these illnesses with kids occur. Exactly. Kids don't get sick on a schedule. It's typically not between eight and five when your doctor's office is open. And so you pick the child up, you know, from school and they have pink eye or they're sick. What do you do? It's five o'clock. Your doctor's office is closed. And so that's the reason why my partner and co-founder, Dr. Gentles, um, founded Nightlight Pediatrics because she was a pediatric um, emergency room doctor. So she was in the ER with goo gobs of kids and, and parents in there with cold cough, flu fever, and all of which are non-emergent, but they had no other option. And so it was her vision to give parents another option after hours to go. And, and I guess to a degree, that is a big part of that in that you want to have an option available uh, where you don't necessarily have to go to an emergency room and wait an hour or wait two hours to be four able- hour average. There you go. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and that is probably one of the most frustrating elements of the healthcare system for a lot of parents when they're trying to get their, their child cured. Exactly. And so, you know, for reasons like about 60%, they, they estimate 60% of the um, diagnosis in the emergency room can be seen in an urgent care setting. 
So we want to remove those diagnosis, those issues from the emergency room so they can deal with true emergencies. And those things, like I said, as cold cough, flu fever, those fun things that children have, they can be treated much quicker in a much um, more economical way. Is part of it also just having the availability, whether it be in Houston uh, or in the suburbs, just of the locations themselves so that the parents have that availability to them? Exactly. So we first started in Sugarland, which is a suburb of Houston, um, primarily because my partner, Dr. Gentles, had great relations out there, mm-hmm. um, already was working at a pediatric office out there, had connections, and, and we started in the suburbs so that parents didn't have to go all the way into the city into the children's hospital. Um, and so all of our locations are conveniently located next to neighborhoods that have young children. So right now we have seven locations. Um, five of them are in suburbs and two are inside the city. We're talking with Zawadi Bryant, who is the co-founder and CEO of Nightlight Pediatrics. We are in New York City at the uh, Small Giants Awards uh, being presented by uh, Forbes magazine. Uh, there has to be, obviously, as you're building this out, and, and as you mentioned, when you started this, you started an area that had a high family population, but you have to build that trust with those families right out of the, right out of the get-go. So how were you able to do that? So the pediatricians are a trusted advisor for parents. Um, they're going to be the go-to person when your child is sick as for a referral. So we started building those relationships with the pediatricians first because they're our partners. We're their partners. We're, it's not competition. We open when they close. We send a visit summary back to them, letting them know we saw their patient and what our follow-up um, suggestions are. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just a partnership. And so when you get the pediatricians on board, then the parents follow because, again, they've built that trust and relationship with their pediatrician, Mm -hmm. and they're going to listen to where their pediatrician tells them to go. Do you benefit to a degree from this push now that you see in healthcare of urgent care facilities, uh, you know, so that people don't have to go to the hospital and, and being able to provide those different options? It's seemingly a wave in the medical industry to begin with, but really it hadn't been looked at from a children's perspective until your company, correct? Exactly. There were other pediatric urgent cares out there before we came along, Um, but it's still very new. Out of the 10,000 plus urgent cares that are out there, there's less than 500 pediatric urgent cares. So it's still an area that's developing. Um, But for us, we, again, we really firmly believe in the medical home. We firmly believe that children in particular should have a pediatrician that they go to. Um, And so we're not you know, we're we're part of the retailization, they call it, of healthcare, where yeah. it's very convenient. We're in shopping centers, we're near grocery stores, so you see us. Um, it's a convenience for you not to have to go into a large downtown area or a medical center to get treatment. Right. And so we bring the healthcare to you, but we also make sure that we partner with the pediatrician. Do you see a lot of people uh, as repeat customers uh, when they when they come in? I mean, they've almost developed a relationship with the pediatrician uh, that that are in your locations. Well, our pediatricians are amazing, and so I will say that some of our pediatricians do have a following. Um, <laughs> but but we do encourage them to have um, a medical home because we only see illnesses and injury. We don't do well checks or immunizations. Um, And so they will need to go back to their pediatrician for those services that we do not provide. But our, again, we do, we employ our pediatricians. Um, Most of our pediatricians work at one particular site or two. And so you, you, you know who you're going to see when you come in and it may not be, you know, children get sick more often than adults, but you may come in once or twice a year, but it's normally the family that comes in. You know, we will see a family of people. One child gets sick one time and then another child gets sick, you know, a month later. So that's normally what we see. Not a lot of frequent of one patient, but of the family. How important is it for a company like yours to to not only build the relationship with the families, but build the relationship with the communities that they're in as well? Oh, absolutely. It's really important because we're all about children. And so we're really big in volunteering and doing philanthropic work in our community. We're a big sponsor and partner with Kids Meals that delivers 
um, lunches to preschool children, right. children that are not in school. So we volunteer there once a month, and we also fundraise for them. And so it's really important for us to show a partnership, not only, like you said, with the pediatricians and the patients, but with our community as a whole. Well, and, and I, I believe I saw a piece that, that you have actually, or you are going into places like Gymboree, to basically provide services to give information to parents about health care for their children and, and be able to partner in, in situations like that to provide the information is important when people aren't necessarily thinking about it, correct? Exactly. And so we go out and we inform the parents on tips like medication management when your child has a fever. Right. Um, we have information like that or we say what's the best access to care when do you go to the urgent care versus the emergency room? Right. Educating parents on things like that. So we do go into Gymboree, we go to health fairs, we go into the schools to educate nurses, parents, and children about health care. How do you, it seems weird to say this about a health facility, but how do you market this? Because, I mean, partly it has to be word of mouth, parents telling other parents, hey, this is a great facility. But I'm wondering if there is a marketing you know, process that you have to use in terms of all the different locations that you have. Right. So it is not a traditional business like we, where we give you a coupon, like a dry right. cleaner, right? right. It's, right. it's definitely as you need us. So right. we do have to stay top of mind, and we have been able to take advantage of all of the great things with social media, moms groups. We have some influencers that will tell, you know, if there's in a mom's group, they'll blog about us, right. um, tell the other mom. So it definitely is a word of mouth business and it's about having a great reputation. Cause again, you, you need to feel like where you're taking your infant or your child is a trusted environment, trusted source of health care. So where do you see this business going? I mean, you're obviously focused in Houston, but I, I mean, is expansion to other cities something that you think about? Or are you still really working on that, that core area in and around Houston to, to really make sure that you have this down 100%? There are still some areas in Houston that we are looking at to add additional locations, but we're also looking at other cities with, within Texas and even maybe within a couple of years, even beyond Texas. Right. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about what happened with Hurricane Harvey and what you had to do as a business, especially in a healthcare sector, mm -hmm. to be able to be there potentially for people that were affected by Hurricane Harvey. Well, thank you for asking. That was a very tough um, uh, period for us, the season for us. We did lose one of our locations to the flood, um, and so we're currently rebuilding that clinic yeah. right now. And um, thankfully, we're opening up a temporary location November 1st um, so that the patients in the Humble area will have some place to go. But we did go through a transition where we basically were scrambling like everybody else in Houston. But for us, healthcare is important. And so during the transition months and even still today, we will see patients that don't have insurance or they're out of network with us. Um, but we will see them until the end of the year because we want to give back to the community that's given so much to us. Do you have to be very focused on what's going on nationally with healthcare right now and the debate around the ACA and how things may change in the, in the weeks and months to come? Absolutely. We have to keep our ear into what's going on. Um, mainly for us, we do see Medicaid. Uh, we see children, and about 40% of the children in Texas are covered by Medicaid. Yeah. So the whole Medicaid expansion, you know, it, you know, removing Medicaid or all of those conversations are critical to us because, again, we do see children. What is the state of Houston right now as a city? I mean, obviously, we saw so much video of, of the devastation there. What is it like now several weeks out from the storm? Well, I will say go Strohs. <laughs> oh, that's, that, that, that's pretty important right now. Yes, absolutely. I will say go Strohs, and I will say Houston strong. And we are just a resilient city. Um, we endure several hurricanes and, and, and calamities within Houston, and we always rise to the top. And so it is a city in transition. Um, I will say the majority of the city is back and humming and back to business, back to school. Um, but there are some parts of the city that are still struggling, and so we're in transition. Zawadi, great to meet you, and we wish you all the best in the future. Thank you so much. Zawadi Bryant, who is the co-founder and CEO of Nightlight Pediatrics based in Houston. 
Well, even though it is the fall, many parents have to already start to look at where their kids will be for summer camp. But while the traditional do arts and crafts, play in the summer pool, uh, it's still an important part of the sector. Parents are looking for more creative options for their children. And to a degree, the summer camp is becoming an extension of school to enhance the education that kids get nine months out of the year already. One company in that realm is Galileo Camps, which runs uh, camps in the San Francisco Bay Area, around Los Angeles, and in and around Chicago. Glenn Tripp is the founder and CEO of Galileo Learning, which is the parent of Camp Galileo. And nice to have him with us here for a few minutes. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So t- tell us how this shift kind of happened in the first place, that the traditional camp that everybody thinks of, it's still there, but, but parents are looking for other options. Well, first, I want to say that I think traditional camps are an amazing way for kids to spend time. And um, my own kids go to sleepaway camp as well. So we think that a mix of different kinds of summer activities is the best way to think about making summer choices. But the shift started happening maybe 15 years ago where parents started looking at summer as an opportunity to expose their kids to things that they weren't getting during the school year. And I think that rather than calling it an extension of the school year, I look at it as a time when you can do things free from the normal standards that constrain what can happen in a school. So in our case, Galileo is attempting to bring um, creative learning, things that have to do with um, going from idea to reality, whether or not that's building a go-kart or painting a mural or um, creating some sort of new robot that you um, might um, create with your friends at camp. So I I think that... uh, those kinds of experiences, those project-based experiences are so rare during the school year, and so it's a fun time to be able to explore those things. And you were saying before we started this that in California, uh, the traditional camp isn't necessarily a, a key ingredient to the formula in general. Yeah, we find that there's different approaches to summer camp uh, depending on where you live in the United States or in the world. And in California, people have have not necessarily adopted the idea of going to a sleepaway summer camp for four or eight weeks like you might find more commonly on the East Coast or in the Midwest. And so that we definitely have a strong um, traditional sleepaway camp ex- um, tradition in California, but it's it's more likely that people would go for one or two weeks and then supplement with two or three other things that they might right. do in the summertime. So what was it that got you started thinking that this was a, a great business opportunity to begin with? Sixteen years ago, I was looking out at the education landscape, and I saw that schools were constraining themselves and narrowing their focus more and more into core academic subjects as the No Child Left Behind legislature passed. Mm -hmm. That had the impact of awarding funding based on um, progress in math and reading scores. And this seemed to be counter to what I saw happening in the world, which was a world that was asking for more creativity, more innovation, more uh, people who know how to collaborate together to create value in the world. And I thought... I think that uh, that families would appreciate that kind of opportunity in the summertime. And so we decided in Palo Alto, California, the birthplace, uh, uh, the center of Silicon Valley, to, to create a camp that was all about innovation and creativity. And it turns out that both kids and parents really like that. And so how many uh, locations are, are you now doing? We now have north of 50 locations and with more than 50,000 kids attending each summer. So now probably the largest uh, educational summer program in the United States. We are talking at the Forbes uh, Small Giants Summit. We're joined by Glenn Tripp, who is the founder and CEO of Galileo Learning. Uh, so the, the, the process of putting together a program for kids, how is that? How do you go through that? And is it tweaked to a degree because of what you may want in San Francisco or comparison to what might you, you know, be best in, in Chicago as well? Well, so far we have found that uh, loving to create and collaborate with other people is a pretty universal thing that kids enjoy. And I, I will say that the number one thing we have to solve for is making this fun for kids because no parent wants to drag their kids out of bed in the summer to go to some sort of program that the kids don't want to be at. Right. So we've always known that fun um, is job number one of any summer camp where you're going to have kids coming back year after year. But beyond that, we have found that um, these hands-on creative opportunities are something that if you have the right adults creating a culture um, that's exciting and fun for kids to participate in, that they're going to want to be there. So we haven't had to change much about our model in these different places where we've operated. But seemingly creativity is is kind of a, a, uh, a, a lifting point for a lot of families right now, for a lot of kids right now. The more creative they can be at a younger age, the more they will think along those lines when they get to be high school age and they think about then going on to college and and then going into the workforce. 
Yes, we, we believe that an innovator is somebody who sees themselves as somebody who can make a small or large change in the world. And you start believing in that at a young age, or you don't. Um, we, we find that, um, that kids who have experiences earlier in their lives of, of going from idea to reality any, in any kind of setting, that they build that confidence. Mm-hmm. And once they've tasted the, you know, the results of like having tried something hard and then accomplishing that and producing that, they want that experience over and over again. And so um, that's the whole point of what we're trying to do is teach kids that they can be change makers and to have them believe that about themselves so that when they go into high school and beyond that they'll, they'll go out and find ways to do that in the world. The counselors come from where? Well, uh, our, lead, our instructors are mostly traditional classroom teachers who have a particular passion for creativity and innovation. And so we, we go out and we try to find the best people that are going to light a fire under kids and get them really excited and, and, and cultivate that, uh, that desire to create. And the time frame in which the, the kids are going to the camps over the course of the summer? Usually kids spend two or three weeks with us. Um, they can do as little as one week or as much as seven weeks with us. We have curriculum that can unfold over the course of the entire summer if they like. What are the benefits that you're seeing in, in doing this now? What, what are you seeing the benefits from the kids themselves? I mean, obviously you probably get a lot of feedback from the parents, but do you see the benefits in the kids rolling back into, uh, into what you get from the parents? Well, I think that the thing that we notice about the kids is, is that when they experience a joy-filled learning community, that their sense of what learning can feel like changes. Right. They can see that learning doesn't have to just be about uh, receiving and memorizing information and regurgitating information, but that learning can lead to creativity and stuff that um, in subject areas that they really care about. And so we think we have a role in kind of lighting those fires under, under kids to help them explore their passion areas and, and teach them that they can create in whatever their area of interest is. Um, we also find that kids who um, come in and experience failure as part of the design process, but then are able to use that failure um, to improve their design so that their go-kart goes faster or their building yeah. withstands a test on an earthquake shake table, um, that they start to really believe that failure is a legitimate part of a design process. They get more comfortable with trying things that they might not be good at. Because let me, let me tell you, one of the problems that kids have today because of the kind of parenting that we have been giving them is that they are terrified of getting the wrong answer. Sure, yeah. And yeah. so we try to be uh, actors yeah. in breaking that cycle for them. Glenn Tripp is the founder and CEO of uh, Galileo Galileo Learning. Do you think then having this kind of an approach in summer camp has an impact on the education process in general? I I mean, we're talking about a a potential shift that we may be seeing anyway to get kids more prepared in school for college or for jobs, whatever it might be. So can this be a kind of a vehicle for change in general? Absolutely. With with over 2,000 staff each summer that we're training, um, we our hope is that they're going to improve their teaching practice and bring that back to the schools that they work at during the school year. And so that's one arm of change for us. And then the other is just with the kids themselves and the parents. When parents get exposed to this kind of learning and see what is possible, we're finding that parents are advocating with school boards and with school administrators to adopt more project-based learning and more innovation-oriented education within their schools. And let me tell you, it's more than just adding a coding class to your existing school curriculum. This is about changing the culture of the entire school building so that kids are freer to express and to take challenges and um, explore what it means to fail as part of a design process. These are things that um, schools can can really orient around if they focus on this as their mission. Nice meeting you. Thank you very much for your time. It's been great to be here. Thank, Thank you. you. Glenn Tripp, uh, founder and CEO of Galileo Learning. Our number one of our show is in the book. Second hour coming up in just a minute. This is Sirius XM 111 Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 